You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 115 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Life and remainder interests are a complicated topic. It starts with what a life remainder interest actually is. And then the second question is, of course, how do you treat it for tax purposes? Michael McCarthy, who you met in the last episode, is the senior tax specialist at Tax and Super Australia. Michael will give you an overview of the taxation of life and remainder interests. So here's Michael. But first, a short disclaimer. Our discussion is general in nature and is not tax advice. No person should act on the basis of any points raised in this discussion without first obtaining and following the advice of a suitably qualified professional advisor. Tax and Super Australia, as well as the participants in this discussion, will not be liable for any loss or damage sustained as a result of relying on the information provided. Yeah, so a useful ruling looking at life tenancy arrangements under a will, and there's a tax ruling 2006-14, and that's the capital gains tax consequences of creating life and remainder interests in property. Now, it deals with lots of different scenarios. I won't go into deals with like beneficiaries disclaiming interests in their entitlements, deeds of arrangements and all different things. So it's, it covers quite a lot in the ruling, But the ruling initially talks about distinguishing between life and remainder interest in property held on trust. And for our example, we're going to use a testamentary trust and life and remainder interest in land that is not held on trust. So they talk about that as being legal interest. So that's capital gains tax consequences of each can differ. So if we look at the equitable interest, so that's the life and remainder interests in property held on trust and we deal about a situation of a life tenancy arrangement under a will, that CGT situation deals with trusts because that's what we're talking about, life tenancy arrangement under a will. When I look at the ruling, if I jump down to, it's quite a lengthy ruling, but at Para 183 it talks about a life interest in an asset entitles the owner of that interest to any income from that asset. So if the asset's land, the life interest owner may also be entitled to possession of the property. So for that life interest, it's like they've got some, obviously, the term use and enjoyment or they can use it, they can... And it probably comes up quite a lot with houses that the husband says, my wife can stay in the house until she dies, but then it's to go to my children. Yes. And that's probably to prevent the house from going to a second husband. It could be, yes. So for whatever reason they determine to set up that arrangement, there can be CGT consequences. So in the will, if that's the situation, then there's like there's a creation of a trust over that property. So it hasn't been transferred directly to somebody else. It's in accordance with the will. It might be, say, held on trust for the use of spouse or for the remainder beneficiaries to be children or however the the will's worded. In those situations, you've got a number of parties then involved. So you've got the deceased because it's got a trigger from the will. That's the starting point. You've got the trustee of the trust, somebody that's holding it in trust. Then you've got the life interest tenant, whoever that may be, and the remainder beneficiaries at the end of the term of the, the life interest. 
and there's CGT consequences in each of those situations. And if I look at first off the deceased, so they've owned a property, and I, look, I won't say this is a joint property or anything like that. It's a it's held by one person solely. They own that property. So what happens when you pass away? Is there a CGT event at that point? You would only have this when the property is held in one name because when the property is held in joint names, then you can't set this up because then the ownership just goes to the other joint owner in survivorship. Right, yeah, so this is a situation where we're saying it's solely owned by one person. And then if I refer to para 15 of the ruling, it says that there is a CGT event at that point, so CGT event E1, and that's a trust over the asset is created under the will of that person that held the property. When that happens, you say, okay, CGT event E1, capital gains tax event, But then there's a separate section of the Tax Act, the 97 Act, Section 12810, and what that says is that any capital gain or loss made by the deceased from the event happening is disregarded under that section. So that ticks off the deceased. It passes to the trustee in accordance with the will. With the deceased cost base? With the deceased cost base depending. What happens is... The trustee is going to have an acquisition cost and there's a section of the Tax Act 128.15, para 4. And now if it was the main residence of the deceased just before they passed away, then we've got market value as being the cost base. If it's a pre-CGT asset, you've got a market value cost base. If it's post-CGT, then the trustee will inherit the cost base or reduced cost base of the deceased at the date of death. The trustee then owns that property and there's a life interest arrangement with that property. The ruling talks about anything can happen in the future. The trustee may sell the property. Who knows what beneficiaries disclaim their interest in the property, whatever happens, and we won't go into that detail here, but if trustee does sell that property, then there's obviously CGT events that can occur there. However, if they do, a CGT event can be disregarded or a capital gain can be disregarded if a person with a life interest lived in the dwelling. If they had a right to occupy that dwelling, they did so under the deceased will, then the relevant sections 118195 and 118210 give guidance on that. So there can be CGT consequences there. There's also we've got the life interest and the remainder owners. Looking at those, generally there's no money or property given to acquire these interests, so these assets, so they're part of a will. If that's the case, the first element of the cost base and reduced cost base of the interest is the market value at the time it was acquired. So that's like acquiring a life interest, like an, an interest in that asset. There is different situations to do with a right to live in the property only. We're talking about a right to live and use it you know the person that lives in it might decide to rent it out or so we are talking about a different situation there sometimes people are granted a right to live in the property for a term or for life and there's a separate CGT event d1 separate to what i'm talking about now okay we've got the life interest and the remainder owners required the asset now what happens then and i'll just say it's a pretty straightforward case where the life interest 
owner lives in that property right through, but then passes away. At that point, then the life interest obviously ends, and that then can create CGT consequences for the life interest owner, trustee, and the remainder owners. So there's an event there um, once the life interest owner passes away. Now, if we look at the life interest owner, para 40 of the ruling talks about the CGT event CT2 happening when the asset ends. And it's the end of a right, isn't it? The end C2 of, is end of a right. The end of that right, yes, yeah, so that, that's finished. So, saying here, in the case of an equitable life interest, CGT event C2 happens when the measuring life for the life interest dies because the interest expires at that time, because that's that right just applicable to the life interest owner. Looking at that, though, and the ruling of paragraph 44 says that any capital gain or capital loss made by the life interest owner from the CGT event is disregarded under section 128.10. And would there usually be a capital gain or loss because the life interest owner received the interest free of yeah. charge? Yes. And nobody is paying for the life interest when it expires. So you yeah. wouldn't have any cost base and you wouldn't have any capital proceeds. Yep, so, so it would just, usually be zero. So, yeah, so in that instance, it, it just makes sense. Even though, so it's nearly like saying with some of these things, a CGT event has arisen, but there's no capital gain to pay. What we're talking about is a life tenancy scenario under a will, whereas a D1 situation might result in a legal right by somebody outside of not a will situation and there might be let's say a, a son might enter into an arrangement with his mother if for her to have a life interest in the property he lives in a life occupancy yeah. right or in so, the granny flat or something similar something like that yeah where it's a outside of the will situation that we're talking about now. okay so for the will situation we have e1 and yep. not d1 yep And that's explained at para 28 of the ruling. Paragraph 44 of the ruling indicates that any capital gain or capital loss made by the life interest owner from the CGT event is disregarded under section 128.10. And that's the general rule when a taxpayer dies, a capital gain or loss from a CGT event relating to a CGT asset the taxpayer owned just before he, they passed away, that that's disregarded. But again, we mentioned earlier on about this K3. When you look at it all in total, you've got a deceased that passes the property on. Now, we've mentioned all these different CGT events that apply. But we've also mentioned this Div 128 that says, look, that will take it that there's no taxable gain at that point of time. So if we follow through the process, and again, this is a simple process, like a, somebody that the deceased has owned the property, they've left a life interest to a person that has lived in the property their whole time and passes away. If that's the situation, the property would pass from the deceased into the deceased estate. In accordance with the will, it would flow through to the testamentary trust which would hold it on trust for the life interest beneficiary who lives in that property. And then on passing, that property flows through to the remainder of beneficiaries. And at the end of the day, even though we've mentioned all these CGT events, 
we're getting to a point that at the very end, in this situation, and I'll probably have to stress that because if you read the ruling, it is quite complex and it deals with different situations that can happen that can trigger different results. In this situation, the remainder beneficiaries will require the dwelling of the trustee's cost base on the date of the deceased death. So like it flows through right through to remainder beneficiaries. The date of acquisition would be the date of death. So you're looking back right at the date of death and not when the life tenant died. Welcome back. So for life and remainder interests, TR 2006-14 is the place to go. In the next episode, episode 116, Bob Deutsch of the Tax Institute will talk about the taxation of property and shares. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.